Chapter Twenty of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Twenty: The Zone of Fire. Just at the first moment of waking, when I was moved by my subconscious self to roll out of my berth and bound to the cabin window, I forgot that we had anything more active to do at Luxor than worship the glory of sky and river and temples. I had room in my mind only for the dream beauty of that astounding picture, into the foreground of which I seemed to have been thrust, so close upon my eyes loomed the line of lotus columns. It was as if the ancient gods had poured a libation of ruby wine from their zenith dwelling into the translucent depths of the Nile. Even the long colonnade of broken pillars was deep rose-red against a pale rose sky, repeated again in deeper rose down in the magic world beneath the pink crystal roof of shining water. Then, suddenly, bright windows of sky behind the dark rose columns flared to the color of primroses, were shot with pansy purple, and cleared to the transparent green of unflawed emerald. The thought came as I gazed at the carved wonder, reflected flower for flower and line for line in the still river, that here was illustrated in unearthly beauty the chief religious legend of ancient Egypt. As each human soul was believed to be part of the world-soul, Osiris, reunited with him beyond the western desert after death, so did these columns made by human hands unite themselves at sunrise with the soul of the Nile, the life of Egypt. I caught a glimpse, as if in an illuminated parable, of the Egyptian cosmos, the heavens, the earth, the depths, three separate entities, yet forever one, as is the Christian's trinity. Almost I expected to see the sun-boat of the gods steered slowly across the river from the city of kings, westward to the tombs of kings, and the little white-breasted birds, which promenaded the deck of our boat as though it belonged to them, which might have been heart-birds from the world of mummies across the Nile escaped for a glimpse of Ramesses' gaily-painted, mosaicked white palace with its carved brass balconies, its climbing roses, its lake of lotuses, and its river gardens. I was sure that if I told these tiny creatures that the pharaohs and all their glories had vanished off the earth except for a few bits in museums, they would not believe the tale. I wasn't even sure I believed it myself, and deliberately blotting out of sight the big modern hotels and the low white line of shops away to the right of the temple, I tried to see with the Ba-birds, eastern Thebes, as it must have been in the days of Ramesses II. I pictured the temple before Cambyses the Persian, and the great earthquake felled arches and pillars, obelisks and kingly structures. I built up again the five-story houses of the priests and nobles, glistening white, and fantastically painted in many colors. I laid out lawns and flower-beds, and set fountains playing. Then, with a rumbling shock, a chasm many thousand years deep yawned between me and ancient No, the city of palaces. It was the voice of Sir John Biddle which opened the ravine of time, and let the Nile pour through it. He was on deck, in pajamas and overcoat, with General Harlow, holding forth on his favorite topic of mummies, an appropriate subject for this neighborhood of all others, yet I should have preferred silence. Poor Sir John! He had been disappointed in Cairo because a villain had not lurked behind each tree of the Esbekia garden, and notes tied with silken black hairs had not tumbled on his respectable bald head from the mystery of latticed windows. But he was thoroughly enjoying his Nile trip, and learning something every day to tell at home. Lady Biddle had humiliated him twice, once by asking me if those old hieroglyphics were written in Arabic, 
again by inquiring whether the stone-barred temple windows had been filled in once with pretty stained glass. But he had forgiven her because yesterday had been their silver wedding day, and he meant to buy her a present at some curiosity shop at Luxor. A pity it isn't the wooden wedding, I heard him say to General Harlow, for I might give a handsome mummy case. I suppose silver will have to be Persian or Indian, unless I can get hold of one of those old bracelets or discs the Egyptians used for money, but that's too good to hope for. It certainly was, though no doubt some industrious manufacturer of antiques would cheerfully have made and dug up any amount on the side of Ramesses' palace, could he have known in time. We were to have three days at Luxor, three days when three months would have been too little, and the second attempt at abducting an ill-used lady from the harem of her treacherous lord would take place as soon as we could learn that our auxiliaries, the Bronsons, had arrived. Until they were on the spot, even a success might prove an anticlimax. Meanwhile, I had plenty to do in playing my more obvious part of conductor, and arranging the last details of our excursion program. Everyone had bundled out early to see the sunrise. Consequently, most members of the set were cross or hungry or both. Nothing could be less suitable than to clamor for porridge on the Nile, but they did it, and called for bacon, too, in a land where the pig is an unclean animal. They were the same people who played coon-can and bridge on the deck at twilight, when moving figures on shore were etched in black on silver, or against flaming wings of sunset, and in gathering darkness the blue-robed shadoof men who bent and rose against gold-brown dykes were like Persian enamels done on copper. Hundred-gated Thebes, the dwelling of Amun-Ra, whom Greece adopted as Jupiter Amun, used to lie on both banks of the Dial, the east for the living, the west for the dead, and those who lived by catering for mummyhood. I had arranged to take our people first round Luxor, making them acquainted with the temple, which had already introduced its reflection to us. As for the town, they were capable of making themselves acquainted with that, its hotels and curiosity shops, when there was nothing more important on hand. Next was to come Karnak, the father of temples, once connected with the younger temple at Luxor as if by a long jewelled necklace of ram-headed sphinxes. And for those whose brains and legs were intact, by evening I thought of a visit to the thrilling temple of Mutt. This last would be an adventure, for Mutt, goddess of matter, the mother goddess, has apparently not taken kindly to Muslim rule. Any disagreeable tricks she and her attendant, black statues of passion, fierce seket, can play on a devout Mohammedan are meat and drink to her, but she can work her spells only after dark. Therefore none save the bravest Arab will venture his head inside her domain past sunset. I was sure we could get no dragoman to go with us, and equally sure that the adventure would be more popular for its spice of horror. The second and third days I allotted to western Thebes, the city of the dead, the tombs of the kings, the tombs of the queens and the nobles, then the Ramesseum, the musical Memnon, with his companion Colossus, and the great temples wrapped in the ruddy fire of the western desert, where Hathor receives the setting sun in outstretched arms. As I was about to unfold these projects at breakfast, a telegram was handed to me. I read it, and while bacon plates were being exchanged for dishes of marmalade, I cudgelled my brain like a slave to make it rearrange the whole program without a hitch. The American consul wired from Asuet that he was detained by an important personage, who wanted to know things about Egyptian cotton and its enemy, the bullworm. But Mr. and Mrs. Bronson would arrive at the Villa Sirius, Luxor, day after tomorrow, ready for emergencies. Of course, being conductor of a tour, and next a man, I ought to have put the interests of Sir Marcus and his lark pie, 
as we were called by rival firms, ahead of personal concerns. I ought to have emoliated myself in the western mummy-land with the consciousness of duty done, while on the eastern side of the Nile Anthony Fenton and Monty Gilder and Biddy played the live, modern game of kidnapping a lady. But I determined to do nothing of the sort. I gazed at the telegram with the air of committing to a heart instructions from my superior officer, and without sign of inward tremor, announced that we would explore the wonders of the West before visiting those nearer at hand. The weather being cool and the wind not too high, I said, it would be well to seize this opportunity for the Valley of the Tombs of the Kings, an expedition trying in heat or sandstorms. Tomorrow also would be devoted to the West, and our third day would belong to Luxor and Karnak. As a bonne bouche, I dangled the adventure of the Temple of Mutt to sweeten the temper of the grumblers, but there were no grumblers. The set listened calmly to my honeyed plausibilities, and the alarmed stewards dare not betray their consternation at the lightning change. No doubt they thought me mad, or worse, because a day in western Thebes meant a picnic, magical apparition at the right moment, in a convenient tomb, of smiling Arabs and Nubian men with baskets of food and ice drinks. Somehow the trick had to be managed, however, for I must be in eastern Thebes, alias Luxor, on the day when the Bronson's presence would render our second attempt at rescue feasible. I had to interview the chef, a formidable person, hypnotizing him and the stewards to work my will, and above all I had to make sure of boats and donkeys for the party at short notice. Only by a miracle could all go well, but I set my heart upon that miracle. Antun, hurriedly taken into my confidence, volunteered to arrange about the boats, and the donkeys, for the other side. Fortunately there was no rival ahead of us, and with juggling of plans and a jingle of silver, Anthony's part was done. Just at the moment when, by dint of bribes and adjurations, I had induced the chef and stewards to smile, Fenton dashed on board to cry, Victory! Somehow, less than an hour later than we should have started, we got off in two big boats with white sails and brown rowers. The canvas did its work in silent, bulging dignity, but the rowers exhausted themselves by breathlessly imploring Allah to grant them strength, and shouting extra prayers to some sailor-saint whose name was calculated to pump dry the strongest lungs. On the mystic western side, where once landed with pomp and pageant the sun-boat of the gods and the morning-boats of the dead, we scrambled on shore with a ribald mirth which always made the set feel it was getting its money's worth of enjoyment. Many donkeys and a few carriages awaited us, the whole equipment previously engaged for to-morrow, and an opaline sunshine which stained with pale rose the Theban hills, and piled the shadows full of dark, dulled rubies, we started across an emerald plain, kept ever vernant by Nile water. The touch of comedy in the dream of beauty was the queer, mud-brick village of Kurna, with its tomb-dwellings of the poor, and immense mud-vases shaped like mushrooms standing straight up on thick brown stems before the crowded hovels. In each phase reposed sleeping babies, brooding hens, dogs, rabbits, or any other livestock, mixed with such rubbish as the family possessed, and the most ambitious mushrooms were decorated with barbaric crenellations. Almost as far as the temple of Seti I flowed the green wave like a lake in the desert, but beyond, to join the Sahara, rolled and billowed a waste of pink-rose sand, shot with topaz light, and walled with fantastic rocks, yellow and crimson, streaked with purple. In the heart of each shadow, fire burned like dying coals in a mass of rosy ashes, and the light over all was luminous as light on southern seas at moonrise and sunset. 
before our eyes seemed to float a diaphanous veil of gilded gauze, and white robes and red sashes of donkey-boys, animals' bead-necklaces, and blue or green scarves on girls' hats, were like magical flowers blowing over the gold of the desert. Everything blue, above all, sand-blue. We found that to our sorrow, after we had seen the temple of Kurna, with its noble columns and its fine fragment of roof, where squares of sky were let in like blocks of lapis lazuli, I rushed here and there on donkey-back, assuring people that this was not wind we felt, it was only a breeze. We could not have had a more favorable day for our excursion into this world of the dead. Why, if we'd waited till to-morrow, we might have met a real wind, perhaps even Kamsin, alias Simun, the terror of the desert. To make Miss Hassett Bean and Cleopatra forget the smarting of their eyes, I told them what a true sandstorm was like, and how its names in Arabic, Turkish, and Persian all come from the fiend Samuel, who destroyed caravans, just as devil came from the Persian div. Our little breeze was from the east, which at Thebes in old days was considered lucky. The west wind used to bear across the river evil spirits disguised as sand-clouds, and these wicked ones had not far to travel, because the Tuat, or underworld, was a long, narrow valley parallel to Egypt, beginning on the west bank of the Nile. Red-haired Set was ruler there, the god who had to be propitiated by having kings named after him. But Ra, greater than he, could safely pass down the dim river running through that world, could pass in his golden sunboat, guided by magic words of Thoth instead of oars or sails, and the guardian hippopotamuses, whom Greeks turned into the dog Cerberus, dared not put out a paw. Mrs. East remembered that Thebes was tape in her day, at which Miss Hassett Bean snorted, and when out came that familiar story about Cleopatra making red hair fashionable, Miss Hassett Bean stared coldly at the lady's auburn waves. "'I wonder if the Queen got the colour at her hairdressers, as people do now,' she murmured. "'I've read that they had beauty doctors in those days, and used arsenic for their complexion, and all sorts of mixtures. Besides, I can't imagine anything natural about Cleopatra, except the asp wanting to bite her.' Upon this Mrs. East retaliated by calling her companion Miss Bean without the Hassett. I shall always think of the Valley of the Tombs as a place of terror and splendor, meant to be hidden from mortals by the spells of Thoth, who circled the rock-houses of the dead with the zone of fire, as Wanton hid Brunhilda, and decreed that they should be lost forever in the blazing desert. Despite Thoth and his magic, men have burst through the blazing belt and found in the gold-rose heart of the rocks sacred shrines the wise old god would have protected. They have found many, but not all, for in the breast of some, one among Thoth's sleeping lions, which masquerade as rocks, may yet be discovered a tomb, better than all those we know with their buried store of jewels, and their painted walls like drapings of strange tapestry. We broke through the zone of fire, and it pursued us with burning smoke of sand, pink as powdered rubies. Always it was beautiful and terrible as we rode in the blowing pink mist, and still it was beautiful and terrible, when half-days we slipped off donkeys or slid out of carriages to enter the tombs which the desert had vainly striven to hide. It was hot and breathless in those underground chambers, scooped out of solid rock thousands of years ago, that great kings and their queens and families and friends might rest with their cause in eternal privacy. Enid Biddle waited until Harry Snell happened to be exactly behind her, and then fainted, with dexterity beyond praise. Cleopatra, however, was in her element. She felt at home, and did not turn one of those auburn hairs scorned by Miss Bean at a sight of the royal mummies lit up by electricity in their coffins. 
These gave the rest of us a shock, our nerves being already in the condition of Aladdin's on his way down to the Cave of Jewels. When the guardian of the tomb of Amenhotep, the king had several other names, which annoyed Sir John Biddle, darkened the painted royal chamber of death, and suddenly lit up several white, sleeping faces, the ghostly dusk was alive with little gasps. There lay Amenhotep himself, in a disproportionately large sarcophagus of rose-red granite from Suan, and in companion coffins were a woman and a girl, all three brilliantly illuminated. They had the look of the light hurting their poor eyes, and being outraged because, against their will, they were treated as if they had been painted by old masters. The dreadful rumor ran that the woman was none other than the great queen Hatsetsu, never mind her more scientific names, her mummy never having been found, or at any rate identified, and it was pitiful seeing her so small and female, when in life she had wished to be represented with a beard and the clothing of a man. Our dragoman, who read English newspapers, and whose idea of entertaining his crowd was to make cheap jokes, just as his family, doubtless, manufactured cheap scarabs, announced that Hatsetsu was the first suffragette. But even those who thought her downtrodden nephew, Tutmos III, justified in erasing every trace of her existence, wherever possible, did not smile at this jest. In fact, having Antun and me to refer to, the set as a whole sat upon the unfortunate dragoman, trying to talk him down in tombs and temples, or ostentatiously reading Vigal, Maspero, Petrie, Sladen, and Lorimer when he attempted to give them information. A few, with kinder intentions, however, interrupted his flow of historical narrative by exclaiming, "'Why, yes, of course, I thought so, and now I remember.' He revenged himself by advising everybody to buy antiques from an extraordinarily old gentleman, extremely like a galvanized mummy. The antiques were extraordinary, too, so everybody took the dragoman's advice, neglecting the other curiosity merchants of the squatting row near the luncheon tomb and the glorious three-tier temple, in that vast copper cup of desert and cliff which is called Der el-Bahari. The sale in mummied hawks, gilded ram's horns, broken tiles with beetles flying out of the sun, boats of the gods, and gods themselves, was brisk round this ancient gentleman, who advertised a blue mummy-cap by wearing it on his bald pate, and seemed to possess as many royal scarabs as dressmaker has pins. Afterward I learned that he was our dragoman's father, but I was loyal and did not tell. It was a wonderful day, all the more wonderful, perhaps, because it left in the mind a colorful confusion. Pictures of painted tombs hidden deep under red rock and drifted sand, tombs which we should perhaps never reach again through their guarding zone of fire, tombs of kings and queens and nobles forgotten through the thousands of centuries, save by their cause and baas, their friends and servants, painted or sculptured on the walls with the sole purpose of caring for or entertaining them eternally. Already we had ceased to remember which was which, and back on the boat, in the hour of sunset, when dizzling tinsel and pale pink cloud-flowers sailed over a lake of clear green sky, the set argued whether the king with the Horaces, or the queen with the retroussé nose, was in this or that tomb. Sir John Biddle recalled the fact that Egyptian horses had been celebrated, and that it was as swell a thing to be a charioteer, then as it was now to be a Vanderbilt with a coach and four. As for a retroussé nose, it didn't matter where it was, on a tomb-wall or a girl's face. Monny thought differently. She and Biddy were glad that the sand and rocks would still hide many secret treasures, while the world lasted. It would be dreadful to think that everything was dug up, for tourists to pry into, or to cart away into museums, and no mysteries left. 
As for Mrs. East, she was doubtful whether to rejoice or grieve that Cleopatra's mummy had not been found. If, however, it were like the incised portrait on the wall at Dendera, it would be well that it should share the fate of Alexander's body and remain lost for ever. The next day gave us another trip to the west of the Nile, not again in the burning desert, but only as far as the Ramesseum, and then to see the Colossi, seated side by side on their green carpet of meadow, looking out past the centuries toward eternity. We had a dance on board that night, and next morning it came out that Rachel Guest, who had disappeared during a turkey trot and a castle walk, had got herself engaged to Bailey. I was not as pleased about this event as was Enid Biddle, who now saw her title clear to Harry Snell, for I had bagged Willis Bailey and Neil Sheridan for Sir Marcus in order to gain kudos for myself. But Biddy, appealed to, consoled me by saying that it served Bailey right if he were mercenary, and that both men would have come in any case. The third day was to be the great day for us, the day with big fate for Mabella Hanim, and the first thing that happened was a letter sent by hand from the Bronsons at the Villa Sirius. They had arrived. The fireworks could begin. End of chapter 20